My name is Steve, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm curious who he's talking about. Um, you know, first off, before I get a little too self-obsessed, which, you know, we get to talk about me for a while, um, I want to thank the committee for inviting my wife and I to come out here and share today. It's a wonderful thing, and thank you, uh, Pat and Claire, for a lovely dinner last night and everybody that helped. And, uh, you know, I keep hearing about this bed and breakfast thing, but, you know, Amy and Eckhart are more like a hotel, the way they set us up and got us all done. You know, breakfast, oh, they took care of us big time. So we're very grateful for that. We want to thank you. And, uh, you know, I was sitting here, and I really haven't attended a meeting of this format or a day of this format before. This is the first time where you have an Alateen in the same day and Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous in. It's truly the language of the heart, each program. You know, as I, I was sitting there listening, I, I could identify with each individual, you know, as you'll hear of parts of my story. And it's unbelievable. Here we all sit today and we have a chance for a life. Our families have a chance for life. Our children have a chance for life. See, it wasn't that way when I grew up, you know, um, I, uh, you know, Sean says he's Catholic, Irish alcoholic. I call it CIA. You know, I was born in the same type of family, and, you know, I saw alcoholism from the, the get-go, you know, right out of the chute. I had, uh, my father was a practicing alcoholic, you know, and my father, you know, uh, he was a sweet man until he drank, and then he was a son of a bitch, you know, and he just, when he got drunk, he got mean, you know, and I remember growing up as a kid saying, I'm never going to be like that. You know, I remember at night, you know, I kind of feel like the Al-Anon for a second here, or the Alateen, you know, listening at the front door or listening for the door to open and that kind of, that eerie sense of air and, you know, when the door opened, what was going to happen? Was he going to come in and, uh, you know, go straight to bed or was there going to be World War Three? And was there going to be hell to pay? Were there going to be doors to be broken and windows to be broken and police to come and all this? And I remember sitting there and I missed a lot of school as a kid. And it wasn't because I was sick. It's just because I couldn't sleep at night. You know, the fear, the fear of going on. You know, there was so much fear and I couldn't tell anybody because, see, you know, from the outside, we look good. You know, I, uh, uh, my father had the ability to make money, and he was a doctor. So we had the two cars and the house and the stuff. And from, I tell you, green grass in front, a lawn or whatever, and we looked good. But as soon as that door closed, you know, it, it was not a fun time. So, you know, I told myself I would never be like my father. You know, so I waited a very long time before my first drunk. I was probably about nine or ten years old. And... uh <laughs> You know, well, in my home group, we got kids that are about 9 or 10 with 13 years of sobriety, it seems, you know. But, um, you know, I was sitting there, and my first drunk was with my father. And um, we went up to Northern California someplace, and, you know, we were, there was like this frog jumping contest that was going on. We didn't normally attend these things. And my dad took me to some little bar. And he wanted to teach me right away of the evils of alcohol. He wanted me to get to know what alcohol was all about and smoking. So he got a little shot glass at a bar, ordered me a shot of whiskey, gave me a cigar, said, drink and smoke. I said, okay. 
So, you know, I drank a little bit, I smoked a little bit, I drank a little bit, I smoked a little bit, and then I puked a lot. And I loved it. I loved it from the get-go, you know. I finally understood why Dad drank, you know. And uh, I was a periodic at that age. But, um, you know, my dad was also full of fear. Now, my dad's fear was different fear. My dad's fear was the fear of running out of alcohol. And so what we would do, instead of having a liquor store delivered to our house, we'd have a distributing company come to our house. My dad would get 40, 50 cases of booze at a time and beer and everything. And we have this big basement in our home. And they would deliver all this stuff. And then, you know, what I'd do is I'd sneak down, grab a bottle of Smirnoff, take it up to my bedroom, put it in a little plastic container, right up to the little local 31 flavors, get some Momo punch, pour it out, put the vodka in, and ride my tricycle around the neighborhood having a good old time. You know, I loved it. I was a little drunk running around having fun. And, you know, I, God, it was such a blast. You know, all of a sudden, Dad wasn't such a bad guy, you know. And I was drinking, having a good time. I did the next natural thing. I became an altar boy. You know, I'm Catholic, you know, and the priest supplied booze. Yeah, I'd go back there, pour a little for Father, pour a little for Steve, pour a little for Father, pour a little for Steve. I've passed out on the altar. I've puked on the altar, you know. I've got that damn chalice, you know, weaving and bobbing and... Good old Monsignor didn't let me go to the altar boy picnic that year. He was a little disappointed. But I was having fun with it, you know. Um, It was great, you know. And I'm growing up and things are going well and I got in a little trouble. Um, You know, I have some brothers, older brothers, and I had an older sister at that time. And uh, my oldest brother thought I should start my first profession, my first job. And uh, my brother was, my oldest brother's product of the 60s, so he got me a tackle box and it, filled it up with a bunch of drugs. So I had all these, you know, dime bags, four fingers, and these, you know, tie sticks, honey oils, and all that. So I went to the local Catholic grammar school and tried to sell it. Um, I found out Sister Celeste frowns on that. And, um, you know, she was not very happy with me. And so I got in a little trouble. But what I found out when I got into this little trouble is uh, that year my dad uh, put a new sound system in the church and Steve got to stay in school. So I learned something. Steve gets in trouble, daddy buys him out. I like this, I used it as long as I could and uh, I went off from that little Catholic school to a little Catholic, uh, Jesuit high school. You know, I, unfortunately I've been scarred by Catholicism and uh, I went up to this Jesuit high school and the Jesuits are a little bit anal, they liked everything typed so I learned how to type my ninth grade of school. And, uh, you know, my dad thought maybe I should start a real profession, you know. So my dad asked if I could come down and do some transcribing for him, you know, once I learned how to type. And uh, I went down to his office one day, and I reached in his bottom desk drawer to look for some uh, typing paper. And I found these 3.2-ounce jars of pharmaceutical cocaine. I may be blonde, but I'm not dumb. Um, You know, we have the big book here. I had my big book. It was a PDR, Physician's Desk Reference. So, you know, I made a small little line like this, and I started to type, you know, and I was typing all over the place. That year, I became a cheerleader. I joined the football team, the track team, the volleyball team. I was a busy young man that year. And I've got my alcohol, and so I go and drink my alcohol, and then I have these drugs that can accelerate and take me to the next level and I can just drink for long periods of time and I loved high school you know I loved you know I loved alcohol it just 
there's just something about it that just gave me a warm feeling. Even today when I think about back then, I get a warm feeling in my gut. You know, I just kind of feel at peace with everybody. And uh, so, you know, I was doing this, and it's all going well. And then all of a sudden, you know, life started to change a little bit. My dad got sick from alcohol, and he was in and out of the hospital. And, uh, you know, I had this girlfriend, and they were going up to uh, Mammoth to go skiing. And they were partying on the way up, and they hit some ice, and she flew out the windshield, and she got killed. And that was the first time I lost someone due to alcohol directly to it. And it was obvious they were drunk drunk driving. Shortly thereafter that, um, if you drank the way my father drank, um, you're going to die. And I don't know how many of you have seen people die of cirrhosis of the liver, but it's not a fun way to go. And I watched my dad go in and out of hospitals um, for a long time. And he was almost, last time he was in and out of the hospital, for about a year. And uh, I was up in Northern California checking out another Jesuit university this time. And I got a phone call. And they tracked me down at a party, and my dad died. Uh, You know, they write down heart attack, but it's cirrhosis of the liver. And he died, and I remember getting, they said, please come home right away, and I, you know, flew right home. But instead of going to um, my mother's home to check on my mother, I went to my dad's office. Because I wanted to see if those drugs were still there. Because, see, I started out as a pretty nice kid, but already alcohol and drugs started to take away things that were good inside of me. And when the drugs weren't there, then I was upset my father died. Because growing up, there was times as a kid, you know, i got to be honest with you, I wish that son of a bitch dead. You know, I didn't want to hear one more time that breaking of a door, the screaming, or my mother crying, or something like that. And I would lay in bed and just, you know, be pissed at her and pissed at him and just go, you know, this is crazy. I don't like this life. And, you know, when he died, you know, I didn't cry. I stopped crying a long time prior to that. So I'd never let anybody get to me. Shortly thereafter that, somehow, I graduated from that little high school. And uh, my mom, my brother-in-law, and sister went out. And they went out to celebrate because I actually got out of high school. And they were quite amazed. That night, my brother-in-law was drinking and being an idiot, crashed the car, killed my sister, and left my mom handicapped. Now, God is trying to get my attention here. You see, because God's trying to say, maybe, Steve, you might want to look around you. Alcohol is tearing the people out of your life. It's killing you. It's, but I didn't get it. Now I'm not drinking for fun anymore. Now I'm drinking because I have to. Because the pain's too great. Because I can't handle it. I don't have the tools how to handle that emotion. And so I'd take a drink, and it would be okay. A bottle of Tanqueray, whatever it took. You know, I'd go up that university, you know, I should probably digress a little bit and tell you a little bit about me. There's been a lot of writing on the wall that I'd end up here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, When I turned 16, I got a little car. I became a liquor store delivery boy, Um, you know, and everything, my whole life revolves around liquor. And, you know, it was a good time. 16 and a day, just about, I got my first drunk driving. And um, I remember I was literally just about 16 in a day, just a 
just got my license, and I got a 16-year-old now. It scares the hell out of me. Um, but I got this drunk driver, and I remember the police arrested me, and, you know, getting the handcuffs put behind me and all that, and going in front of the judge, and I got sentenced to three AA meetings. I'd like to tell you a fate worse than death at 16 years old. You know, and so somehow I ended up at this first meeting, and uh, it was a Lano club. And uh, I walked in there, and these guys were sharing. And as my wife likes to say, they all looked like they needed a drink. And um, I sat down in front. I didn't know newcomers sat in the back. And some guy's doing what I'm doing now. And he said something to this effect, as far as I can remember, something like, I used to take people like you and slit their throats for the money in their pockets so I could get a drink. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a turnoff to Alcoholics Anonymous to me. <laughs> you know, I'm not looking forward to hanging out. And uh, so I'm going, oh, this is going to be fun. And uh, then I move on to my next AA meeting, and I thought I'd find an easier, softer way. So I went up to uh, West Hollywood to Plummer Park, and um, it didn't say men's stag, but apparently it was. And all these fine young boys would come up to me, and I'm 16, and I was a little cute back then, and they're going, do you want what we got? I'm going, not tonight, sailor. You know, and uh, so I'm going, this isn't good. And uh, then I move on to my next AA meeting, and I go, I'm, I'm going, I'm taking it simple. And I go up to the little bank building, the Western Federal Building, and I walk in. First thing I see is, you know, Mrs. Morrow or something, and I see these the mothers in the neighborhood, and I go, shit, I'm not playing with Johnny anymore, you know, and it was just a bad deal. And, you know, I didn't get another 502 probably for at least maybe six or eight months. Um, and then I got a 90-day program, you know, where they teach you how to drink and drive, you know, and you got to start getting your court card signed, and, you know, I just made a big joke of it, you know, I'd pass around the court card, I had a fake ID by that time, and drinking in bars, and I'd go down and say, who wants to be the secretary of the Friday night meeting tonight? You know, and just start forging that. And then I got another 502, and now it's a six-month program. And, uh, you know, it's all of a sudden, you know, going to jail ain't that big of a deal. You know, it's starting to kind of be regular. And, um, you know, I go off up to this university, and I'm up there. And um, shortly after that, my brother-in-law was drinking and driving, and he crashed the car and killed himself. You know, it's the game my family plays. And, uh, you know, alcohol is just taking another person out of my life. And, you know, judges are trying to tell me constantly, you know, send, giving me these get well cards and, uh, you know, try a meeting kid. And, you know, finally uh, what happened was is my mother got tired of my drinking, you know. And I'm living off my mother uh, because I don't believe in the seventh tradition. And, uh, you know, mom's credit card, mom's car, mom's everything. And she said to me one night, she goes, Steve, you either get sober or um, I'm going to cut you off financially. Like I said, I'm blonde and not dumb, baby. And uh, so I'm a late-night party type guy, and I found this treatment program that in 10 days and a couple weekend follow-ups, they can cure me of my alcoholism. <laughs> you know? And I said, this is going to be good. So I got in my little Honda, and I'm driving up the coast of Southern California to Santa Barbara and I pull off a of State Street and I pull into this little hospital and I meet the sweetest little nurse there and she comes up to me and says, what would you like to drink? Welcome. And I go, damn, this is going to be fun. And so she goes, seriously, what do you want to drink? 
And I said, well, if you're buying, I'm drinking, you know. Can you get me some St. Pauli girls, Heineken, Tanqueray, Chevis? And damn, she got it all for me, every bit of it. And the next day, you know, she says, come on, we're going to go down the hall and we're going to have a little treatment. I said, okay. And they take me into my own private little bar. It's got mirrors. You know how we like to look at ourselves when we're drinking, right? You know, at the bar. Kind of out of the corner of the eye seeing what's going on. So I got my own little bar. And then they got like this big dental chair thing that I'm sitting on. And, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, so far so good. And um, well, the next thing is uh, this German lady comes in, maybe Eckhart's uh, sister or something, and she said, you know, I think Sprechen die Deutsch or something, and she tells me to drop my pants, and she subs a shot in my backside, and it's an amatic. She shot me up with this uh, thing, and amatic is what you give someone when they eat poison. It makes you violently ill. Now, I didn't know that at the time. And so we got this in my system, and I'm thinking, let's go do the treatment. So we sit down, and she pulls these water glass, you know, uh, so far like this, and she fills one up with Tanqueray, and then puts a little warm water on top to cut it. And I'm going, this is going to be good. And, uh, you know, so I sit down in my chair. I'm doing okay. I put the first one down. I'm thinking, God, this is going to be a good treatment. And then all of a sudden, she pulls out a beer. She puts one in the glass, and I start working down that beer or something. And I get this warm sensation over my body. And sweat just automatically starts beating out of me. And I do projectile vomiting like you'd never want to see it again. She pulls this big salad dish thing around, and I'm puking all over. And she's going, Heil, and it's slapping me on the back, and <laughs> going, good noggin. And, you know, we're throwing up all over the place. And we did this for like 45 minutes. And, you know, I may have walked in, but I ain't walking out. And so they take a wheelchair and put me in it. And they roll me down the hall into this little private treatment uh, bedroom. They turn out all the lights. And they soak rags and Jack Daniels and Tanqueray, and they put them all around my head. And then they got a spotlight on all the bottles I just drank. And they start playing a tape called Joe's Head. And it's about the evils of alcohol and the mind of the alcoholic. And Now, mind you, we're paying a 1000 bucks a day for this. And um, so... We're going through this, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just going, I'm going to die. And this lady comes in and gives me this little, uh, you know, shot glass or something. I thought it was to calm everything down, and apparently it was a laxative. Now I'm going out all ends, all over the place, and I'm going, this is not, I'm not making 10 days here. No way. You know, she can keep the money. Um, you know, I can't do this. And so then the next day, Florence Nightingale came in. She's got an IV cart, and she kind of rolls the IV cart down, and she slips a little sodium pentothal in my arm. Sodium pentothal is true serum, because she really wanted to find out the real reasons why I drank. You know, I don't know if I was sleeping with the dog or something. She wanted to find out what was going on and asking me all these questions. They used to tape it. I actually still have the tapes. They quit doing that after a couple lawsuits, I heard. Um, but so, you know, all of a sudden I said to myself, you know, I can do... Uh, Four more days in Duffy's bar as long as Florence keeps coming down the hall. Now, I told them I had a pretty big drug habit at the time. But they said, you're not here for drugs, you're here for alcohol. And I go, thank God. And, uh, you know, I quit drinking. And I got out of this place and I couldn't drink. Every time I smelt booze, 
it was Pavlov's dog. You know, I start retching or this or that, and it wasn't a good, I wasn't a fun date. And, uh, you know, so I, I went without alcohol for, God, almost a couple of years, but thank God for drugs. And, um, you know, but all of a sudden the drugs started to kill me. I mean, I was dying. I was get, got down to about 128 pounds soaking wet, you know, and all this. And I'm sitting there and going, I got to learn how to drink again. You know, and so, you know, I'm telling you, alcoholics have willpower because I sat there and I really made a conscious decision. I'm going to drink again. And I'd sit there and take a drink and throw up and take a drink and throw up. And I tell you, but after about a month, I got it, you know, and I started to drink again. But what happened was um, when I started to drink again, this thing came out called St. Paul, uh, no, Long Island Iced Teas. And, you know. I had like five or six of them or something like that, you know, and uh, one evening. And, um, you know, I like to drive when I drink. I don't understand why you would drive any other reason if you weren't drinking. And uh, so I was racing down a little street called Highland in my neighborhood, doing about 85 in it. And uh, I hit some lady in another car. And I crashed her over, and she went over the center divider into some other cars. And, uh, you know, I, I altered this woman's life. Um, by my alcoholism and my drinking. And uh, I looked and I kind of looked around and looked at the situation here and go, I'm going to jail. You know, I, by now I have like five or six of these 502 things. You know, I've been to one-year programs, a year-and-a-half programs. I've done enough Senate Bill 38s to, you know, go to here. And so I said, I'm out of here. So I take off. And unfortunately, I didn't realize I only had three tires and so apparently they said there was about an eight foot spark in the air and they just kind of followed the sparks in the tracks and uh, you know we're racing th- I'm racing through this neighborhood and this is where I've lived for 20 some years and um, I thought I knew the neighborhood and so I pull into this driveway and I was going to hide my car in a friend's driveway well apparently I didn't know these people and they uh, did not like me trying to hide my car there. And uh, my pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization is I got busted by, uh, they're called West Tech. It's like a rent-a-cop. You know, a little guy. He doesn't even have a real gun. You know, and, you know, this guy busts me trying to break into this thing. And, you know, I get arrested. And, um, you know, they take me to jail. And, you know, now I get out of jail and I'm looking, you know, to go to for trial and things like that. So I decide, you know what, I better do something about this. My attorney said, you better, you know, let's start getting a game plan going here. So, you know, this place up in Santa Barbara now has a drinking, snorting, puking type routine. And so I said, what the hell? And, uh, you know, I go back up there, and now it's a 14-day program, and I go through the routine, and I do the whole nine yards. And all of a sudden, 14 days have passed, 15 days have passed, 19 days have passed, and, you know, I keep doing these treatments, and they haven't let me out. And um, I'm thinking, uh, you know, what's going on here? You know, we only signed up for 14 days. You know, I could still count. I got fingers and toes. And uh, they said, well, while you've been here, we have decided that you're um, crazy, you know, basically. And we're not going to let you out. And we're going to commit you to a mental institution for an indefinite period of time. Now, I told them I didn't sign up for that. And... um, you know, but apparently they had a few state doctors that came through that felt I did sign up for it. And so I said, well, what the hell? If i got to get locked up, can I at least pick out my own mental institution? They said, okay. 
So I had my family get me the, uh, you know, the uh, yellow pages of mental institutions, and I found one over in the state of Hawaii. I thought, if I'm going to go, let's go to Hawaii. And so I had them fly me over to Hawaii, and uh, I remember going there thinking, this is going to be good. I'm going to go over there, surf on the weekend, have some fun. And uh, so I fly over there, get over there on November 1st, 1985. And uh, I remember getting in there going, uh, you know, this is wonderful. And they take me up, and I go by North Shore and go up to this place, Tahe Mohala, whatever, the new beginning or whatever the heck it meant. And, you know, I get locked up in there. And all of a sudden, you know, they get the same padded cell or padded room that I've been at the West Hollywood Sheriff's Station. They took this way too serious over there in Hawaii. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I went through Thanksgiving and Christmas comes up and I've already made all, you know, start sending home the little wallets and the little, you know, moccasins or whatever, ashtrays, whatever I'm making that week in shop. And, uh, you know... New Year's goes by, all of a sudden we're now around Valentine's Day, and family ain't visiting. They're kind of, they're real glad to have me a couple thousand miles away, to be quite honest. And I'm going, this, this is no good. They've taken this alcohol, this craziness way too seriously. So I became an alcoholic in this joint. And, uh, you know, I got them to move me over to the alcohol drug ward. And, uh, you know, I start getting taken out to meetings here and there. And finally, they let me out of this mental hospital. And uh, they said to me a little something, the doctors over there, they said, you know, kid, if you're going to really get sober, uh, when you go back to the mainland, there's a little clubhouse on the west side of Los Angeles. Go check it out in Hawaii. So I come back to the mainland. I go over there. And a friend of mine, it's not an Alcoholics Anonymous, we just show up at a little clubhouse randomly. We picked a night. It was a Sunday night. And I show up at this place called Ohio Street. And uh, my buddy Freddie Meyer took me there. Hmm. Kind of those angels that, you know, you just kind of have. He has nothing to do with alcoholism, but he was just a guy, and we picked the right night. And I showed up, and I found a group a lot like you. I didn't find, you know, the guy that wanted to slip my throat for the money in my pockets, but I found a guy well-dressed at the door standing up saying, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I met a guy named Dino Fenenos. And uh, Dino said he was going to be my first sponsor. He welcomed me at the door and he said, You're going to do seven meetings a week. You're going to do the big book. We're going to go to things called watches. That's where we watch people turn one year sober the, night, the, uh, the day before until they hit midnight. We're going to go to a thing called the yard, and that's where we go over by this this old guy named Clancy's house, and we go play uh, volleyball and softball, and we're going to go do that, and we're going to do moves, and we're going to blah, 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 blah. And this is the first night. I'm going, Jesus, slow down. You know, but uh, this guy was excited about Alcoholics Anonymous. He had the fire burning inside, and he became my first sponsor. And uh, I love that man. I still love him today. He taught me how to be a man. Uh... He taught me that it was okay to give another man a hug and to tell him that I love him. See, because when I grew up, we we couldn't tell each other we loved each other in my family. You know, I get it what you're saying. Still to this day from my mother, the most I've ever gotten on a card is Hallmark, love mother. I can't hug my mother. If I try to, she'll put her hand out and shake my hand. That's the way we're raised. We don't talk about emotion. We don't talk about anything. This guy taught me in Alcoholics Anonymous 
what it is to be a man. Now, the whole time this man was teaching me this lesson, he was dying of AIDS. Given to people, right and left. There are more people I know today sober by this man's unconditional love than, uh, you know, this is so many of my dear friends. But, unfortunately, I did not get sober right away. See, because I came here, and I really came here to stay out of jail. That was the only reason. I was looking at a few years, at least in the state penitentiary, for as many deuces as I had at the time. And, uh, you know, I kept showing up and getting drunk and showing up. I was the loser in the corner. You know, I kept raising my hand. Or, I, or what I'd do is I just want to tell you. I'd come to the meeting because I wanted to get a court card signed early before going to the judge. And then after the meeting, I'd go out and get drunk. <coughs> then I'd come back the next day, lie about it. And then eventually what I'd do is I'd tear myself up real good so I could raise my hand and, uh, you know, kind of meekly bring it up. And, you know, it got old. I remember sitting in a meeting and a guy named John Keith came up to me one night and uh, I raised my hand as a newcomer and, uh, you know, he just said, you know what, when are you just going to cut that shit out? When are you going to get this program? And, you know, he just went off on me and I was so angry. You know, and through the participation, I just wanted to rip his, the whole participation, all I could think about. So I'm going to come over and beat this guy silly. You know, and right as soon as the participation was over and we had a 10-minute coffee break, I bolted for John. I was going to share with John. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and John, before I could get a word out of my mouth, he says, you know, the reason I say that is because I love you. God, it really kind of takes a lot of steam out of it. You know, when you really want to trash some guy, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. But, you know, eventually, it was July 23rd, 1986. That's my sobriety date today. And I'm drunk and loaded one more time. And that same person, Dino, showed up at my mother's house because I'm still living off of mom. And uh, I can remember like it was yesterday and I could hear the door and I could hear my mom saying to him, you know, I don't think he wants to see you right now. And he's going, I'm sure he doesn't. And uh, he goes up and throws my body into the shower and showers me up and takes me to my home group, which is the Wednesday Night Pacific Group in Los Angeles. And... Uh, you people love me, drunk and loaded, that night. It amazed me. See, because I didn't think I was worthy of any love. I've done a lot of bad things out there. I don't need to share from the podium. But I was not a nice young man. And I hurt a lot of people over the years. And you love me. It's amazing. You don't even know me and you love me. Yet you knew me better than I do myself. I started to get into the program and started working the steps a little bit more. Um, I ended up having to go to jail. I got sentenced for that crime. And I got sentenced and they uh, fingerprinted me in and they took a second set of fingerprints. I go, what are you doing that for? I've been busted a lot of times. I know the routine. I'm rolling with the guy, you know, having fun. And he said, kid, you ain't going to make it in here. So my first job in Alcoholics Anonymous was cleaning up public highways. I'm one of those orange suit type guys. You see the other thing? Public bathrooms. I'm good at them. And I did that for, Christ, six, eight months, close to a year or so. Just clean up highways and public bathrooms. And uh, that's where I learned how to be employable. And especially when, you know, if you didn't show up at 5 o'clock, if it was 5 or 1, you were going back to jail. I was very punctual also. 
But um, I also have another disease. They're called women. I love them. You know, God done good. And, uh, you know, I found this newcomer. She had negative 30 days of sobriety. And, uh, you know, I don't know how we kind of shared one evening. And, uh, you know, later, a little while past that, I'm sitting in a Tuesday night book study. She passes me a little note. And I read the note. And it says, don't worry, but I think I'm pregnant. Don't worry, I think I'm pregnant. Should not be in the same sentence. You know, she talks about one line. That is not a good one line. You know, and she got my attention. And, uh, you know, I read that. I go, oh, no, 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 this isn't good, you know. And uh, my sponsor fired me, um, you know. So, you know, I'm looking at this lady going, God, I know you've got the, you're not, no, 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 no. And so my solution was to that is about a year later, you know, I was kind of slick, and uh, I met some cute little girl who I didn't know at that time. You know, I was just trying to be of service. Uh, I gave her a meeting directory uh, at drunk driving school. Uh, I was, like, you know, working on my master's degree, and she was a freshman or first 502. And she was complaining about AA, so I was circling some meetings for her. And she showed up at our meeting one day, gave a call, and came to our Saturday night meeting, and, um, my solution was I got engaged to another newcomer. So if you want to have a difficult first year of sobriety, um, try having one woman who is, uh, how do you say, growing. Her, her sobriety is growing right in front of you and being engaged to another one, two newcomers. When I walked into a room, you know, I kind of felt people were, you know how sometimes you think people are talking about you? They were talking about me. And it wasn't good. It was not good. Um, it was a tough first year. And, um, you know, uh, finally the young lady got smart, gave me the ring back, said maybe we ought to get a little bit more sober. Besides, she was already married. Um, but that's her story. You know, I won't go there. She just forgot. Um, you know. Yeah, I went down to try to get a marriage license, and I went, what? You know, Jesus. Um, but so eventually, you know, I f- remember sitting down, and somehow we got to one year. And I got was going to celebrate my one year and take a cake. And uh, I remember them calling my name and going down and thanking my sponsor and my God and my home group and Alcoholics Anonymous for one year of sobriety sitting back down and all of a sudden I got some moisture out of the corner of my eye. I didn't know what the hell that was. And I found out it was tears of joy. Because like I said, I quit feeling a long time ago. I'm the king of the ice house. And uh, it's the way I was raised. And I got to feel a little something. And it was the first ray of hope that there could be some change. You know, and we started to get into the steps. My sponsor had me start working the steps, and I got to share that inventory. Like I said, I've done a lot of bad bad things out there, stuff today that, whatever. Um, and he didn't throw me out of his home. He said, I love you, and this program's going to work. 
He shared a little bit of his story. And that's where Alcoholics Anonymous works. One alcoholic talking with another, sharing. And all of a sudden, I didn't feel so bad. All of a sudden, you know what? My eyes all of a sudden kind of came up. I wasn't staring at the ground all the time. I could start looking people in the eye. And I had the ability to work some more steps. You know, I started to finally get my sponsor set after all that jail stuff and said it might be an idea to get a job. He started to talk about these traditions. And so, because of the seventh tradition, I got a a crappy little job because I was a crappy little employee. And uh, I remember going, how am I going to live on $312.65 every two weeks? You know, I can work mom better than that in a couple of days. You know, but uh, he said, that's what you're going to do. So I got a crappy little apartment and all that. But you know what? Again, all of a sudden I could stand up a little straighter. Because I started to become self-supporting through my own contribution. Started not to be such a taker. And that's what we start learning around here. And, you know, my wife and I, we got engaged again. And she found, she, uh, we got her divorced and then we got married. Um, that young lady um, had that boy, my son Taylor. He's 16 years old today, right now, probably watching the Clippers play whoever. And uh, I remember going to court because I wanted to deny that child because, you know, that's who I was. I didn't want to take responsibility. I remember he was a couple months old and they did this tissue typing thing. And it's, it's kind of like an exact science. And uh, <laughs> it was up by point ninety nine point the kid might be mine Um, I have a very rare blood type and unfortunately and so I remember my attorney looking at me and he was in AA and goes hey dad congratulations you know .68 isn't much to work on here and uh, I became a father and my sponsor at that time said oh by the way there's this thing called child support and he goes it's due on the first not the second and you're going to pay it. And that child support's been paid on the first for 16 years now. And uh, that little boy who I didn't want anything to do with is the apple of our eye. He's, he's a great kid. He's grown up in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, his mother, after she had him, has not come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, she's drinking today. Uh, but... Uh, I've got a great son. He's taught me a lot about how to, again, how to be a man. It's changed my life. And, you know, Brennan and I got married and, you know, we, I started to get better little jobs and all of a sudden we get this little house out in Pasadena and the white picket fence thing starts coming up and we get better, business gets better and then I have another business in Orange County and things are going all better and all of a sudden I'm thinking, this is it, baby. You know, I've got some stuff going on. I'm sponsoring people. Not too, worrying too much about God, but uh, you know, you know, I'm doing a lot of other things. And um, my wife, she, we have our little boy. We it took us a long time to get pregnant, um, and we had our little boy Brendan, who is now ten. And that little boy Taylor, we said, hey, why don't you help us name him, so that he feels a part of our. Because you taught me that to make him feel a part of everything. So we let Brenda Taylor name Brendan and name his sister, um, but. 
what happened was shortly thereafter that, you know, things are going okay, and then my business has started to go down, and I was taking some very bad actions. And uh, at eight years of sobriety, I come home, and, uh, you know, I, I've got these uh, these medical businesses, and uh, I tell Brenda, you know, we're going to lose them, honey. We're losing everything. Like, uh, we got to move out of our house. And she's going, like, when? And I'm going, like, Saturday. Um, you know, because I was hiding and I wasn't telling her the truth how we were doing. The credit card company calls up. Basically, they want their credit cards back and cut up. Beverly Hills Mercedes. See, I had to have a Mercedes at that time because I was a big deal. And uh, they wanted their car back. Uh, and so we had to bring them their car back. And at eight years of sobriety, we lost everything that could be material. But that's God's getting my attention. See, because I made a mistake. I got a different sponsor, and um, this guy Clint, and he wanted to redo the steps. And he warned me before taking the third step, because it says after the third step, it says, you know, think long and hard before taking the step. But it's after the step, you know. I should have thought long and hard before it, because it says take away my difficulties that I put in front of my God. And I put stuff in front of my God. And it doesn't mean you can't have stuff. You can have all the stuff in the world. It better not be put in front of your, your higher power. And so I asked him to remove it. He listened. Um, <laughs> so it was all removed. And, uh, you know, I, uh, when I came home to tell that story to my wife, I said, that's okay, honey. I've got to let you know something. I'm pregnant. I go, okay, that's great. Um, you know, and uh, so we move uh, back over into my mother's guest house for a little while. And it was appropriate because it enabled us to help take care of her. And uh, I got a little job. I went in my home group, shared. A buddy of mine put his arm around me and said, hey, kid, I'm doing this. Why don't you join me? You know, and I says, I'll pay you 200 bucks a week. And I was glad to make it. You know, and I started to do that, and it's the same thing I do today. I've just kind of moved a little bit up the chain. But, uh, you know, and I started to do that, and all of a sudden I started to work the program a little bit more. Started to take those steps and try to be active in my faith and try to be active in the program, you know. And, um, you know, life starts getting good again, and my wife gets a, a big job. And my wife becomes a big deal. Uh, she uh, was doing international business and hanging out with vice presidents of comp- uh, countries and the head of the international money fund of you know the country. And <clears throat> all of a sudden, she's not Mrs. Watson anymore. Now she's Dona Line Fiesta, you know. And uh, I'm watching her, and this is all going on, and I'm losing her. Now I'm sponsoring men at this time and I can sit down with a man and we can share the program. And I can see the light turning on while I can see the light dimming. Slowly dimming. And uh, she's going to get me. I won't look at her. Um, (laughs) And uh, she was dying. She was dying of untreated alcoholism. And untreated ism. And I didn't know what to do. And I told, talked to my sponsor about it. And I said, man, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. You know, she was 
busy for a few years and um, I was working on you know trying to do what I could do I have my part in it I have a very big part in it you know um, you know a very big part of it is uh, you know it's easy to be kind of in a meeting it's easy to be kind of spiritual and walk up to the new guy and put your arm around him saying welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous kid keep coming back it's not so easy to do that when you get home at night put your arm around your wife and say hey welcome home honey I hope you had a good day see I was taking away her womanhood I was taking away who she is because see I wasn't sharing with her my life I may be sharing it with the men I sponsor and other people but I wasn't sharing it with my wife and so we were drifting apart and she was basically gone for most of three years and so I went to my sponsor and said hey listen I can't do this She's out of here. Unfortunately, I had a new sponsor. His name was Clancy. Um, it's like making a pact with the devil. Um, and he goes, uh, it doesn't work that easy. He goes, uh, no, she's not out of here. You know, because I said, I want a divorce. He goes, nope. You know, and uh, he says, you're going to work on it. And, um, you know, there's a young lady in Al-Anon named Vanoa Shaw. And uh, just a quiet little, humble, meek little thing. And uh, she saw my wife dying. And she just went up and said, Honey, you're going to go back to, you know, to the program. And, uh, you know, she uh, threw my wife back into the program. Kicking and screaming a little bit, but she threw her back in. And Al-Anon saved her life. You know, and saved our our life, saved my my marriage and my children's mother and everything. Because see, left to my own devices, I would have said, "Screw it." But see, thank God I've got a sponsor. Thank God that she has a sponsor. You know, so we can have someone else kind of run these things by. And you know, I joke about those meetings over in West Hollywood, but you know. My wife went back over to some of those meetings in West Hollywood and uh, the men and women loved her back to life. Pumped it in. One coffee cup at a time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really changed. You know, our life, is, our life is sweet. It's not perfect. Jesus, don't let me let you think it's perfect uh, because I'm involved with it. Um, <laughs> you know, and I can screw up anything. Um... But, you know, what we get to do is we get to try to practice Alcoholics Anonymous today. We get to do our best. And, you know, some days are better than others. Um, but, you know what? We do have an Alcoholics Anonymous home. You know, as we, uh, as you, mo- you all talked about, about the chain being broken, you know. Today, when I come home from work, my children run up. They don't run away. And they give me a kiss and tell me they love me. And they hug and we roll around on the floor for a second when my back isn't killing me. And then the first thing I do usually when I wake up in the morning is one of my, my little son, Brendan, will run down the hall and give me a kiss and say, Good morning, Daddy. See, I would miss that. You know, I would miss all that. 
you know, and we get to we get to share love at the table. We don't we're not abusive with one another. You know, I understand when you know Bonnie talks about not using language in the home like that. We don't cuss. We don't scream at each other. We try to treat each other with respect. You know, in our home, because that's important. Because you know what, we are the example to our children, and my children are growing up in Alcoholics Anonymous. They are. You know, they may not be going to Alateen, but they're going to AA. You know, and they get to see us. And you know, my daughter will. You know, heck, she's she's bragging to the teacher that her mom and dad are speaking at an AA convention or Al-Anon convention in Ohio. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> that's that's the same Catholic little grammar school that I was dealing drugs at. Um, <laughs> You know, it's a very generous universe. You know, I I screwed around with that church, you know, and today I can be an active member of it, you know, and I'm, I don't know how, but they actually think I'm a respectable gentleman. And they entitle me with responsibilities at that school or at that church or at my office or whatever I do. And that's not who I am. Who I am is a scared little boy. When I came in here, all I wanted to do is stay out of jail. Screw jail. Stay out of prison. You know, I just, I wasn't into being Bubba's boy. Um, You know, and uh, I was scared. And I came here not wanting anything that you had. And I made sure that you knew that when I walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. That I didn't want anything that you all had to offer. Today, God, I am so blessed that you loved me back to life. You loved a person that didn't know how to be a father. Today I'm a good father. You loved a person that did not know how to be a husband. Today I'm an okay husband. You loved me and taught me how to be an employer, an employee, a son, a brother. You know, be one of us. And I would have missed it all. I truly would have. If it wasn't for these rooms, a God in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And uh, I don't know what to say, but you know what? I want to thank you for my life because I wouldn't have it. There was many times where, you know, I thought, screw it. Let's call it a day. But today I don't think that way. I've got a sweet life. Thank you.